0: We turn now to the New Testament lesson from the letter to the Philippians, chapter 4. Let us listen for the word of the Lord. Therefore, my brothers and sisters whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. I urge Judea and I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord, Yes, and I ask you also, my loyal companion, help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, we live in anxious times, The Christian writer Anne Lamott explains in her characteristic wit and honesty, the problem with God, or at any rate, one of the top five most annoying things about God, is that he or she rarely answers my prayers right away. It can take days, weeks. Some people seem to understand this, that life and change take time. I, on the other hand, am an instant message type of person. We heard in our Exodus passage today a story about how people were were reacting to their anxiety and fear, what people do when they forget that God is present and they think that God has forgotten about them. The story of the golden calf is a dramatic tale, and it might seem familiar to us. It comes with familiar props and lines of dialogue and characters on a stage It begins when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. Moses had been up on the mountain talking with God, receiving commandments and the laws for probably several weeks. And the Israelites are starting to get worried, starting to get a little anxious. And they say to Aaron, as for this Moses, well, we do not know what has become of him. So, of course, as we heard, Aaron gives in to their requests and creates a god for them. He gathers their jewelry, boils it down, forms a mold, and casts an image of a golden calf. What happens next? Well, the people rejoice. They revel. They stop being anxious. They worship and sacrifice to this great mound of gold, After all, they were tired of waiting around, feeling fearful and anxious. They were tired of hoping Moses would return and lead them into God's promises. They were ready to take matters into their own hands, or at least to get Aaron to do it for them. And the next verse, which we didn't read, is the the Lord's words. See, the Lord sees and knows what they are doing and is not quite happy about it. In the next verse, God describes to Moses how the Israelites are worshiping this big, shiny monument, and God threatens to strike them down. Moses continues the conversation, and God offers grace and forgiveness instead. But there are consequences. So when we look at this story, there are many layers. Layers about symbolism and idols, about God's anger and God's grace. But here is one thing that we can remember today. In times of anxiety... When humans get tired of investing energy and time waiting around for God's promise, they get very, very eager to invest time and energy in worshiping their own pile of possessions. And after all, this is not limited to the Israelites. Paul writes to his church in Philippi because he's traveled away from them and there seems to be some discord, some dissent in the ranks, particularly between two women leaders in the community. We don't know the nature of their disagreement, but we know that something has bubbled up and the news of their dissent has reached Paul's ears. Indeed, we are all anxious at times and we can imagine that this church with their leader gone might be feeling those wells of fear bubble up. Indeed, as I was reading what scholars had to say about these two very different passages in Exodus and Philippians, it is interesting both times how many times they mention anxiety. These were anxious times, writes a scholar who refers to the Israelites and the Philippians. We live in an anxious world, wrote a scholar from 2008 and 1955. Indeed, in these times of anxiety or crisis or where there's just a lot of worry and wondering what's next, we pick and choose where we'll invest our money, our resources, our time, our passion. We choose what we want to believe in, what sort of thing we want to sacrifice our time and energy for. Indeed, even the least religious person in the room will choose to invest in something, to sacrifice for something, to believe that something will come through with saving effects, whether it's money under the mattress or friends at the door. Depending on where we are located in our life, we might choose to invest in different things to help alleviate our anxiety. On one end of an economic spectrum, We might choose to invest in our children, drive them all over the map in order to make sure they have good college resumes stacked with SAT scores and travel soccer leagues and all the right kind of connected mentors and friends. On the other end of an economic spectrum, in some neighborhoods, where there is not much promise of a future or job, young people often turn to the only industry that is hiring, and that is often the corner drug trade, which means they'll invest in guns and drugs and whatever else alleviates their anxiety about the future. We can all look at our lives and see some place in the mix there, see where we've chosen to invest, whether in a house or stock or car or offspring. We all make choices that we try to consider as faithfully and thoughtfully as possible. Yet still, no matter how faithful we try to be when faced with an anxious world, So, so often, we choose to invest in possessions that we can own and manage on our own. We choose to dance around our carefully crafted monuments. We choose to forget about the promise of a life lived in a different way. The words to the church in Philippi point to this different way of living. For remember, like Moses, Paul has been gone for a while Like Moses, Paul is leading a group of people in the name of a God who is not showing up as clearly and tangibly as the crowds of people would like. Discord has set in and tension is building. So, what does Paul say? We heard the choir sing it. Paul says, Rejoice. Do not be anxious, but rejoice. We do not rejoice because there is no logical reason to be afraid. There are plenty of logical reasons to be afraid. Paul is probably writing this letter from a prison. He knows the reasons to be afraid. We rejoice because what Paul says next in the letter. Paul reminds us that the Lord is near. This is what the Israelites forgot in our story today. They forgot that God was with them. They forgot that the Lord was hearing and seeing everything they did and said. They forgot that the reason Moses was taking so long up on that mountain was that God was laying out a whole new covenant, describing an entirely new way of life for them. Trusting in God's presence is not something we can grab a hold of and lock down with proofs and prescriptions. It is not a possession to hoard. Trusting in God's presence means trusting in a promise, a promise that we are not forgotten, not abandoned, not left in our anxious, fearful crouch forever. The Lord is near. These words are both a comfort and a challenge. Paul wants us to look beyond our nervous individual investments He wants to point to an assurance that will offer us so much more than our boiled-down pile of jewelry. Rejoice, he says. We don't rejoice because we are always oh so patient, or because the world is lining up at our feet. We rejoice because we know there is a promise larger than our monuments, a faith that is deeper than our fear. There is an assurance that is bigger than our attempts to define it. We are promised that God is with us, and we are offered a peace that surpasses all understanding. However, we must raise our eyes and pay attention. We must read and remember what Paul is saying, how he asks us to notice whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, Whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Indeed, we will find the peace of God only when we realize that the God of peace is with us now. This is the season of stewardship in the church, as you heard Ginger with the children, a time when we look more closely at our ministries and money, when we reflect on where we are investing time and energy and dollars and other resources. Stewardship season is the time where we ask what possessions we are holding onto and what promises we are trusting. There are many places we can look in the life of the church in order to begin to answer the question about what promises are we taking the time and energy to invest upon. We can look at what the church is doing in outreach ministries with walk-in or prayer shaws or SEDEPCA. We can look at how people are trying to deepen their faith through second course or church school or book groups or Presbyterian women. We can each pay attention to where we are being asked to learn from others and where we are being asked to teach others. We can look at where we spend our time, our money, our talents, And right now, I'd love us to look a little more closely at the words and the promises we are claiming in our worship. After all, we go through these words each week, and sometimes we pay more attention, and sometimes we read past them. But it is interesting to see the promises we are claiming together here each Sunday, and how it might differ from the voices we hear shouting at us throughout the week. For when the world says, you better make sure that you can multitask while you're doing that thing, in our call to worship, we say we are here to worship God with all of our hearts, minds, and bodies. When the world says, don't admit mistakes, or if you must, do so and then get out of the way, we in our prayer of confession say we will make mistakes, but we are trying to do our best, and we are still loved, and still being used by God. When the world says, hold on to what you can, let go only of what you must. In our time of offering, we say, the work of God's kingdom is being done together, and it is larger than any monument I can build on my own. When the world says, keep up a brave face in our prayers of the people, we acknowledge how the world's pain is hurting us, and we try to sit and reflect on what we can do. Indeed, as we go back out and leave these doors, when the world says to us, the more anxious you are, the better parent or boss or student or person you must be, or it say that being stressed is a sign of how important we are, or it says, don't you dare relax and celebrate until you have piled up a whole bunch of your possessions. When the world says these things, we in the church try to go forth in the world saying, there is a peace of God that surpasses all understanding. We are beloved. We are given a promise that points to something true, honorable, just, and commendable. Thus, we will try to rejoice now. The promises of God look different at different places and different ministries in our church and in our world. Sometimes we have to use our imagination to imagine the things that we cannot always see and hold, the places where we're being asked to invest that are beyond what we can see in front of us right now. Sometimes it helps to turn to something as simple as a children's book. The story Miss Rumphius by Barbara Cooney is not a religious story, but in it, it tells a story of a life that was invested in the promises that Paul describes in these letters to the Philippians. It says, once upon a time, there was a little girl named Alice who lived in a city by the sea. From the front stoop, she could see the wharves and the bristling masts of tall ships. Many years ago, her grandfather had come to America on a large sailing ship, but now he worked in a shop at the bottom of the house, making figureheads for prows of ships and fronts of cigar stores. In the evening, Alice would sit on her grandfather's knee and listen to his stories of faraway places. And when he had finished, Alice would say, "'When I grow up, I too will go to faraway places, "'and when I grow old, I too will live beside the sea.' "'That is all very well, little Alice,' said her grandfather. "'But there is a third thing you must do.' "'What is that?' asked Alice." You must do something to make the world more beautiful, said her grandfather. All right, said Alice, but she did not know what that could be. In the meantime, Alice got up and washed her face and ate porridge for breakfast. She went to school and came home and did her homework, and pretty soon she was grown up. The story continues, and Alice goes to live her life fully, becoming a librarian in the city, going by the name Miss Rumphius now, and she decides to travel the world far and wide. She grows older, she sees more things, and one day she starts to feel achy and tired and decides that it's time to go home to a house by the shore. From the front porch of her new home, Miss Rumphius watched the sun come up. She could watch it cross the heavens and sparkle on the water. She saw it set in glory in the evening, and she started a little garden among the rocks that surrounded her house, and she planted a few flower seeds in that stony ground. Miss Rumphius was almost perfectly happy. "'But there is still one more thing I must do,' she said. "'I have to do something to make the world more beautiful.' But what? The world is already pretty nice, she thought, looking out over the ocean. But the months continue, and the next spring, Miss Rumphius is not feeling well. Her back aches. She cannot get out of bed. And as she lay, lies there each day and night, she looks out and she sees the flowers that she had planted spring up from the stony ground. She sees them out of her bedroom window, blue and purple and rose-colored. Lupines, she says, with satisfaction, she remembers that she has always loved lupines the best, and she wishes she could plant more seeds in the summer, so she could have still more flowers the next year. But she is not well, and summer comes and goes, and autumn, and there was, she was unable to plant more flowers. And after a hard winter, spring comes. Miss Rumphius is feeling much better. She can start to take walks again. One afternoon, she starts to go up over the hill where she has not been in a long time. And there, there, she shouts, I can't believe my eyes because there on the other side is a large patch of blue and purple and rose-colored lupines, a place where she has not seen all year. It was the wind, she said, as she kneels in delight. It was the wind that brought the seeds from my garden here and the birds must have helped. And then Miss Rumpheus has a wonderful idea she hurries home. She gets seed catalogs. She buys the best seed she can, five whole bushels of lupine seed. And all that summer, Miss Rumphius walks, her pockets full of seeds. She wanders over fields and headlands, past schoolhouses and churches, over highways and down country lanes. She flings the seeds wherever she walks. She tosses, tosses them into hollows and walls. Her back doesn't hurt her anymore. Some people call her that crazy old lady until the next spring when there are lupines everywhere. The fields and hillsides are covered with these blue and purple and rose-colored flowers. They bloom along lanes and along the schoolhouse. Bright patches are around the church and in the backlands and back roads, down in the hollows and along the walls. Miss Rumphius has done the third most difficult thing of all. The story ends by going back to the narrator, who is Miss Alice Rumpheus' great-niece, and she says, My friends all come to look at her and call her the lupine lady. They think she is the oldest woman in the world. She Often she tells us stories of faraway places. When I grow up, I tell her, I too will go to faraway lands and come home to live by the sea. "'That is all very well, little one,' says my Aunt Alice Rumpheus. "'But there is a third thing you must do.' "'What is that?' I ask. "'You must do something to make the world more beautiful.' "'All right,' I say. "'But you turn the page, "'and it's this girl in the middle of lupines, "'and she wonders, "'I do not yet know what that can be.'" "'Friends, we are being asked to make the world more beautiful,' even if we still have to pray and listen and learn and reflect on what that might be. That is why we come together. That's why we come together and worship and pray and sing and do these things to give glory to God here in downtown Richmond and around the world. We are being asked not to invest in a pile of possessions with our life, but to invest in a promise, a promise that God is here, right here, right now. This is a promise that makes all of our life together more beautiful, all of our life together more worthwhile. This is a promise that we try to claim and live through life and ministry of this church community. So Paul Paul says to us, beloved, beloved ones, remember that the God of peace will be with you no matter what happens, no matter what occurs. Release your anxious holding and rejoice in this promise, O beloved ones of God. Let us pray. Lord, there are so many voices in this world that shout so many things at us. Yet you are present with us here and now. May we listen for your words and see how you are calling forth to do your work in the world and to make the world a bit more beautiful. In your holy name we pray. Amen.